Well, I have finally arrived and I've become a TV preacher. Um, my own grandson, Banks, last week during the sermon um, was excited. He said, I can't believe Papa is on TV. Now, I didn't have the heart to tell him it was probably only in about 28 TVs, um, but I'm thankful that we have this technology. I miss you. I miss not preaching uh, to faces that are responding to the Spirit of God as the word goes out. Um, thankful, but I'm also hopeful that this is just for a time. Uh, our eyes have been just glued and focused on this COVID-19 pandemic we're walking through. I would ask you to change the focus, to change the direction of your eyes, that we might think about a day in history uh, close to 2,000 years ago uh, called the um, Palm Sunday. This Palm Sunday is traditionally called such because Jesus entered Jerusalem in the last week of his earthly ministry. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds were cheering and waving palms, hence Palm Sunday. It was the beginning of his last week of his earthly life. It'll be followed by Thursday, the Last Supper. It will be followed by the crucifixion on Friday and then the resurrection on Sunday. We won't be together. This has never been the case for any of us. We've always been able to gather around uh, the, the table, both to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but also the word uh, in all of our lives, but not this year. And uh, we will miss that. But I'm thankful that we're trying to mitigate the loss by both these recordings, but also the, um, the updates and the blog posts that will be on the website. You'll find many things there. Uh, you'll find both a, um, a chronological look at this last week of his life that I hope will be an aid to worship. Uh, there will be sermons posted on Thursday and Friday with worship guides for each of those services as well as Sunday. Uh, we won't be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper on Monday, Thursday. Monday, if you remember, is that comes from that Latin word, which means new commandment. That is on that night, that Thursday night before the crucifixion, Jesus said, another commandment, a new commandment I give you. Uh, to love one another, and all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And we generally gather together and think about the mind of our Lord on that night before his death. We celebrate communion. We won't have that. We won't be able to celebrate communion. Hopefully next month we can, but I pray that you would be longing for communion. Communion isn't something that we do in our homes as families. Uh, the connection around the table is not a biological relationship, but a spiritual relationship. Uh, the, the, the table, the Lord's table, is, is not an individual ordinance like prayer or Bible reading that you do on your own, but it's a corporate ordinance where Christ as the head is there at the table with us as we gather around by faith in the gospel. But let's long together uh, to celebrate that again, hopefully in the near future. So we want to look at this Palm Sunday. We want to look at the week ahead and we want to prepare ourselves. And, and the passage that you've read in John chapter 12 is an interesting passage because it's the very last words of his public ministry. Now, we don't know exactly when he said them, whether it was a Sunday or a Monday. Uh, what we know is in 36, in chapter 12, verse 36, it says that he hid himself or went away. And then in 37 to 43, John seems to explain why uh, the people of Israel rejected their Messiah. And then he picks it back up in 44 and says, Jesus cried out. So we don't know when, but we know he said these things. 
And, and when Jesus cried out in 44 to 50, he's really giving us a summation of his entire ministry. The themes in our passage have threads that run all the way through the gospel. I mean, for example, he's going to declare his identity, that he's one with the Father, that he has come to bring a salvation to all people. He's even going to have warnings. And we see those sprinkled throughout the gospel. What I want you to see, I want you to look at this passage as kind of um, a final appeal, a final appeal that Jesus is making. And, and notice it says he cried out, he raised his voice above perhaps the other voices to grab the attention of the people. He's making appeal to all people. You, you, you see that he says, whoever believes in me. He's not going after a race or a class or some socioeconomic position. He's going to all people. He is a savior to the world and he's come for the world. But I want you to hear this as a final appeal. I think we would do well to pay attention. So he's going to do three things here, kind of summing up his entire ministry. He's going to state his identity, the dignity of Christ, that he is one with the Father. You're going to see that in 44 and 45. In 46, he's going to restate his mission, that he has come as a light to the world to bring salvation. And then you're going to see in 47 to 50, you're going to see these warnings. It's part of an appeal. I want to warn you to, to pay heed to what I'm saying. So we'll look through each section. Um, first, though, he's going to state that he has come as one with the Father. Look with me at 44 and 45. He says, And Jesus cried aloud and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. You see, Jesus here, he's, he's describing this intimate and unique relationship with the Father, that they are one that they are one in essence and glory. Look at what he says when he says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but believes in him who sent me. He is equating belief in himself with belief in God. Now, any teacher or prophet before would always call you to believe in God. Put your hope in God, the psalmist says. But Jesus is calling for faith in me to be equivalent to faith in God, that an interest in Jesus is an interest in God, that a trust in Jesus as a savior of sinners is a trust that God is a forgiver of sinners. But not only that, he, he combines his words with belief in God. And in John 5, 24, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So there you see Jesus aligning himself as one with the Father. But he goes even further, because notice he says, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. In other words, to see Jesus in his earthly ministry, the words he spoke, the compassion he exercised, the miracles he performed, it's like seeing God in action. That's what the incarnation is, right? I mean, God in the flesh comes and ministers among his people. That's what he's saying, to see him is to see God, to see Christ's miraculous, saving, compassionate actions. That's how God ministers. So you see that they are one in essence in glory. In fact, he says it in no uncertain terms in John 10, 31, in a conflict with the religious leaders. He says that I and the Father are one. Now, let me be clear here. This is not modalism. Modalism is a heresy. It's seeing Jesus as son and God as father as the same being. They just happen to express themselves differently at different times. That's not what we're saying here. 
This is what we call Trinitarianism, where God the Father and Jesus the Son are equal in essence, glory, and dignity, but they're distinct in person and purpose. You see three times in the short passage, he says, I was sent by him. You see a distinction, and yet you see an equality. Now, you may be thinking, <clears throat> is this really matter? I mean, does this high theology, does this really have practical import? And I would say, absolutely it does. And let me, let me prove it to you. Number one, you can't know God apart from Christ. You can't know him. God is unknowable. You can't somehow dig deep enough to find the truths of God. God has to reveal himself to us. God is unknowable to the human mind. God, by grace, has revealed himself. Now, he's done this in creation. We see his glory in the skies and the power of the universe, but we really don't know him. We don't know his character. We don't know his kindnesses. We don't know his mercy. Think about this as an example. So if you were on the shore of the Red Sea and, and you were watching Moses lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and they get up to the Red Sea and then you see Pharaoh and the armies come chasing them down about ready to destroy them all. And then the Red Sea parts and you see the nation of Israel go through it and then you see Pharaoh's army following after. They get their wheels stuck in the wet, in the wet mud and then all of a sudden Israel is out and the waters return and crushes the Egyptian army. What do you know about God? Well, standing on this side of the Red Sea, you'd know, well, they obviously have a more powerful God, at least on this day, or maybe the water gods were for Israel and not for Egypt. You'd just know some things about power and destruction, but you wouldn't know about intention or purposes, particularly saving purposes, if you're on the other side of the Red Sea. And God revealed to Moses as he did why he did what he did. Then you'd understand. God has to reveal himself. And what we see here is that God reveals himself perfectly in the son, in his own son, who is equal. Who better to reveal God than Jesus? You know, John picked this up. He records it in John chapter 1, verse 18. He says, no one has seen God, but God, the one and only, has made him known. So he's saying no one has seen God, the father, but God, the Son, the one and only Son, has made him known. Jesus is the apex of revelation. To see Jesus, to understand Jesus, to hear Jesus, is to know what God is like. It, it, to know uh, God's providential ways, to know his kindnesses, to know his mercies, to know God's intentions for the world, to know how he's going to redeem all mankind, how all things are going to work out for the good. We know those things only through Jesus. The Old Testament is a revelation, but you can't understand the revelation apart from Jesus. He, Jesus himself said this in Luke 24. He says, beginning with Moses, this is on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. He says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, these disciples, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Or Jesus himself said in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, that Jesus is the summation of all things. So we, we need that Jesus be equal to, in essence, in glory with the Father, so that he can come explain him. Otherwise, we wouldn't know. Herman Bovink was a Dutch theologian, a contemporary of Abraham Kuyper. He wrote these words. He says, God, as the object of human knowledge, who can fathom that? 
I mean, how can man know the infinite and the incomprehensible? Who can be measured by neither time nor eternity, in whose presence the angels cover their faces with their wings, who lives in unapproachable light, and to whom no man has seen nor can see? How can such a one be known by man whose breath is in his nostrils, and who is less than nothing and less than vanity? It's beyond our grasp. But Christ, who has seen the Father and declared him to us, will speak of it. We can depend upon him and his witness as true and worthy of all acceptation. And if you, a man, want to know who God is, don't ask the wise, the scribes, or the disputers of this age, but look upon Christ and hear his word. So we see Jesus has declared himself indignant to be one with the Father. And this is the only way that we can know God. But not just this, this is the only way we can honor God. You cannot honor God apart from honoring the Son. Jesus said this in John 5, 22. He says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Do you know what he's saying here? This is incredible. What he's saying is that if you don't pay heed and honor the Son, God's not honored. So, so those of you who perhaps are on your own spiritual journey and you're trying to find God, apart from honoring the Son, you will not honor God. Or those in Judaism or Islam, they're trying to honor God. They make little of Christ. God is dishonored in the dishonoring of the Son. Many of us, others, may think, well, I, I don't like God as much in the Old Testament. He's kind of vengeful. He seems judgmental. And Jesus, he's kind and merciful. They are the same in essence and purpose. You see the mercy and the judgment of God in the Old Testament, and you see the mercy and the judgment of Jesus in the New Testament. They are the same. To honor one is to honor the other. You cannot separate them. They go together in terms of our worship. Now, I know what you may be thinking. You may be actually a bit pushed back by some of these claims Jesus has made. I mean, think what he said. If you believe me, you believe in the Father. If you see me, you've seen the Father. I'm the light of the world. He's making these claims that are quite incredible. He is saying he's one with God. What do you do with that? I mean, Jesus, the most influential person in the world, what do you do with that? You could say, and many do, well, I think he's a good teacher. I think he's a, a kind man. He's an example for us to follow. These words do not give you that opportunity. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, argues this point. He says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil himself. You must make the choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Uh, so for, if you're listening and you're not a Christian, you have to do something with his own words. You either reject him outright as a liar or a lunatic, or you bend the knee to him. And bending the knee to Jesus is believing that he is one with the Father. He is God himself in the flesh who has come to save. Believing on that with all your heart and all your soul. 
Now, if you are a Christian, uh, what this reminds us is to strive to know more of God by studying the glory of Christ. It reminds us to, to pay heed and honor the Son and to consider him worthy of all worship, to not domesticate him to just a helper in getting to heaven. Remember John the Apostle, uh, when he, at the Last Supper, in, in the gospel, he records that he was, um, he was leaning against the breast of Jesus. He was the beloved disciple. You see the close proximity as a brother to brother. But then you see John in Revelation 1, when he sees Jesus again. Jesus is glorified. His glory is revealed now in full measure. And it says in Revelation 1, when John sees him, he says his face was shining in the strength of the sun. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. His hair was white like wool. And his voice was like the sound of, of thunderous waters. And he said, I fell at his feet as though dead. Can you imagine this is the glory of the one that we're talking about. I mean, as you consider this Easter week, let us worship Christ with awe and reverence. Let us consider him and all of his beauty and all of his power and the humility that he would come in the flesh and lay down his life for us. He's worthy of all of our worship, all of our homage and reverence and all for him. So, so here we see in 44 and 45 that he has given to us, reminded us, of the dignity of his identity, that he is one with the Father. But notice he goes right now to speak about his mission from the Father. He was sent three times, so he's reminding the people. He's appealing to them. This is why I've come. Look with me at 46, 1246. He says, I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. May not remain in darkness. What is he saying here? Well, in John's gospel, there's this antithesis between light and darkness and life and death. And what darkness is in the scriptures is it's the wilderness. It's our world right here. It's our lives. It's living apart from God. You see aspects of it all the time in the physical aspects of darkness. You see it in disease. You see it in disorder. You see it in COVID-19. You see it in death, the darkness of the physical life we live. But you also see moral darkness. And what I mean by that, I don't mean some sordid, dark kind of, you know, some back alley kind of darkness. It can be very cleaned up. It can be bitterness. It can be pride. It can be arrogance. It could be ingratitude. There's a darkness to it. Consider the, the young boy who has a single mother who works and works and slaves away at her job to provide for him. And she strives and works as diligently as she can to provide everything he needs. And he moves up the ranks through schools and gets into college and gets a job and, and goes and moves away and lives his life. And that as you look back on their life, he never once said thank you to her. He never once sent her a thank you note or buy her flowers for her birthday. Never credited her for anything. What would you say of a son like that? Wouldn't you say that he was ungrateful? And the ingratitude would be at such a level that it would be like darkened. He must have a darkened, futile mind to never once say thank you. And what do we do to God? God has given us life. He's given us breath. He's given us all the gifts that we have. He's given us energy to do it. He's given us opportunities. Do we ever thank him? There's a darkness to this moral universe in which we live. But not just that, spiritual darkness. I mean, people across the world 
don't know why they exist. Why am I here? How do I find peace? How do I find happiness? I mean, we are filled with evidence over the darkness with which we remain. That's why Jesus came. He came to be light. Now, in chapter 12, isn't the first time he's mentioned that he's the light of the world. He mentioned in chapter 9, when he gave sight to the man who had been born blind, he said, I am the light of the world. This man who could no longer see, who was in darkness, now he begins to understand the world now through Christ. You see it in chapter 8. In chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He'll understand life now through the lens of the Messiah. But it was even before chapter 8. The first time we find out about Jesus being the light is actually in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness have not, has not overcome it. Now, what's interesting about John is John begins his gospel to mirror the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John mirrors that. And what he's doing here is he's reminding us that Jesus coming as the light isn't simply to declare that he's the Messiah, but he's the Messiah who has come to recreate all things. He's come to remove the darkness. He's come to bring about a new order and a new life. And you see that in his ministry. You know, think about the physical world. What did he do when he came? Well, he healed the man that was dead, gave life to him, pushing back the darkness of death. He gave sight to the blind, pushing back the disordered darkness of this world. He gave hearing to the deaf and speech to the mute. He gave healing to the sick. He's rolling back the effects of this darkness. He's showing, I'm establishing a new order. I'm making all things new, he's saying. That's what he means by being light of the world. You see it in the moral universe. He came bringing forgiveness. To the prostitute weeping at his feet, he said, your sins are forgiven. To the prostitute in John 8, go, sin no more. He's bringing forgiveness to the shame and the guilt of our immorality, our sin, our selfishness, our ingratitude. He's saying, I've forgiven you. Not just the moral universe, the spiritual universe. He's pushing back the darkness by revealing God to us. We can now know God through Christ. It says in John 1:14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only full of grace and truth. We can now know God. We can now relate to God. We can now appeal to God. He is our mediator. So he has come to bring the light of God into our lives. I mean, you must, even as you're listening, you, you must admit we need the light. I mean, you think about the nature of what we're walking through right now, this pandemic. The, the pandemic is simply evidence that our world needs light. The physical disordering of our world is seen clearly in COVID-19. But let me just remind you, Every generation has seen this. This just isn't ours to bear. Every generation sees it. I mean, when you just look at the nature of plagues, just in the last 2,000 years, I'm just going to give you examples of the high points. The Justinian plague in 541. They think as much as a quarter to maybe half of Europe died. Or the Black Death in the 14th century. Some estimate maybe 60% 
or up to it. Now, they didn't have all the, all the ability to gather data and communicate, so the numbers are rough, but, but perhaps up to half or 60% of Europe. Or you go in the 18th century to Mexico. Mexico, with one plague, lost 80% of their population. Or you go to the smallpox in the 19th century. Worldwide, 500 million people died. Or you go to the 20th century and the Spanish influenza in 1918 to 1920, 100 million people died. 20 million people in the U.S. were infected. Now, right now, COVID-19 has over or close to 300,000. I make no minimization of that. Uh, people are, in, are have contracted the disease and, and many are dying. But it just goes to show you that in this physical world, we need light. We need a new, we need a renewal of all things, not just in the physical world, in the moral world. When you look at the world, people continue to not know why they exist. They don't know how to find happiness. They pursue things and people to find security and significance. And it continues generation after generation to yield nothing but frustration and disappointment. We live lives of quiet desperation, always wanting more because we don't know the satisfaction that comes from God. You look at the spiritual universe, people are confused as, a, as ever over God. Who is God? What does he want? What has he done? What's his character like? So we need this light, even in our day and our time. We need Jesus to be the light of the world, and he has come to be the light. Now, he's come to be the light by by living a perfect life, which is acceptable to God, by dying, bearing our sins upon himself, bearing the full judgment of God, and he has been raised for our justification. He's come to bring the light, and he was raised for our justification. And the way Paul looks at the resurrection, resurrection of Christ is that he's the first fruits of the new order that he's making. He's the first fruits. And we who by faith, who whoever believes will not remain in the darkness, we're being made new. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. He is renewing us. He is forgiving us. We're walking now in the light that he gives to us. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we behold Christ, we're being transformed from glory to glory. We're being changed right now. Now, we don't have the full benefits you know, that's what theologians say. Uh, we are in this new creation. We are in it now with forgiveness and reconciliation. Nothing will separate us from God. And yet, not yet fully, are we experiencing it? This is actually the role of the church. We're now called to proclaim the salt and light of the gospel. Jesus was the light of the world. Now we declare the light as we declare the gospel to people. I hope during this time, but particularly during this Easter week, that while people are on, on, they're very, very nervous about this whole pandemic, that we can speak to the light that Christ has brought. Pray for opportunities. If you're a Christian, pray for opportunities that you might have the possibility or the chance, particularly to people who know you and know your life, that you might declare the hope, make a defense of the hope that is within you about the glory of God. So here we have in this passage, we have Jesus kind of just summing up his whole ministry. This is who I am. I am one with the Father. And then he declares and testifies to this is my mission. I am a light unto the world that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. You receive forgiveness. 
You receive reconciliation with God. You have hope for life. The light that Christ gives to those who believe doesn't just lead them out of darkness, but it helps them to understand all of life. But notice the third part, 47 to 50. He gives us these warnings, and I want you to pay attention to this. He says in 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on that last day. So clearly there's a warning here. He's warning all of us, actually. You know, about those who hear the words. Who's he speaking about? Well, these people that he speaks, they've heard the word. They just don't practice it. Is he talking about superficial Christians, Sunday Christians? We come to church, we hear messages, but we continue to live our lives as we want to. In other words, every man does that which is right in his own eyes. We hear the message, but, you know, we're going to live life that serves us best. Is he talking about them? Could be. He also says the one who rejects me and does not receive his words has a judge. And maybe he's talking about those who are a little more antagonistic. Then I totally reject Jesus and I don't receive his words at all. Or maybe he's talking about both. Here's the point. That he's warning those who have not taken heed of the word that Jesus has given. And the warning is that you'll face judgment. Now, you say, well, hold it now. He said he didn't come to judge. Well, remember, the scriptures teach us that Jesus is coming twice. He comes first to bring atonement, and then he comes to bring judgment. And the judgment he comes to bring is based on the words that his Father has given to him. If you look in 49, he says, I've not spoken of my own authority, but the Father has sent me, has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. In other words, the commandment that Jesus has brought is to believe on the Lord Jesus. That's what he says in 1 John. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has commanded us. So here's the warning to us who are listening, even just to this sermon. What do you do with the words that you've heard? Now, the Christian will hear the words and will realize his life may not be lining up with them and, and repent and seek to confess his sins or her sins and to be reconciled to God and walk in the freshness of that reconciliation. Uh, there's others of you who may hear these words and not receive them or reject them entirely. And I, I, the warning is for you. There is something you must do. There is human agency here. The human agency is you have to keep them. Uh, that that you, have to, you have to receive his words and do them. There is human responsibility here to, to becoming right with God. Uh, these works that you do, walking out these works that he calls us, they don't save us. The works don't save. Christ alone saves. But us doing the works evidence that we really do believe them. It evidences true faith. So, so there is an agency here that if you're not a Christian... You're called to make a move. You're called to respond to his words. But not just is there agency, there's urgency. You know, notice that he says that he will judge on the last day. The world's not going to go on forever. And there will be a last day. There'll be a day when Jesus will be the judge. We see that in John 5. He says, for as the father has life in himself, so he is granted to the son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. 
So Jesus will bring about judgment by the very word of God. Now you may ask, well, why hasn't he judged us already? Why hasn't he condemned us already? Well, John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, has a word. He says, why then does Christ not choose to condemn them? It is because he lays aside for a time the office of a judge and offers salvation to all without reserve and stretches out his arms to embrace all, that all may be more encouraged to repent. There's an urgency to repent, to repent and believe. That is how we respond to his words. When I say repent, I mean it's a turning away from the life that I've lived for myself and and a belief in God. I'm now living for God. No longer am I living for myself. I'm living to please the one. That's what you see the problem of those who rejected him in the passage before ours. They love the glory of man more than they love the glory from God. We're living for the glory of God. To repent means to confess. I can acknowledge that I have sinned against Almighty God, my creator, I confess that I'm a sinner. I make no bones about it, no excuses. I am a sinner and I repent of my sins. I am sorry that I've sinned against you. And then to believe, what does it mean to believe? Well, to believe really means that I understand the nature of who Christ is, that he's one with the Father. I understand what Christ has done, that he has come to be a light to the nations, to save us, to reconcile us to God. I understand it. I believe it's true. And now I'm going to trust in it. I'm not going to try to appeal to God up some ladder of morality. I'm going to just throw myself on the ground and say, God, save me through the precious work of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to repent and believe. And that's how we respond to these words that we don't stand in judgment. I pray that you would not neglect such a salvation. Think about Jesus. His last words is an appeal in mercy. Don't be guilty of neglecting such grace offered to you. He has set aside his office as judge to offer salvation to all. Uh, For the Christian here, I pray that this would change the way you look at this week, that on the Sunday before his death, this is what Christ proclaims to us. I I hope you're renewed with a sense of joy that that Jesus Christ is fully God in every way. Our salvation is secure because it's tethered to Christ who is God in the flesh. And to believe in Christ is to believe in God, that the triune God is securing our salvation. I, I pray that it would give you hope and joy. I pray that you might look upon him as a light of salvation. And to seek him alone, to know God, and to walk in the righteousness that he calls us to walk in. We have these incredible words that are given to us, particularly the Christian, to help us live with joy in the midst of this ongoing darkness until he comes back. Where it says in scripture, there will be no need for the sun because he will be the light that brightens all of our lives, leads us to God in fullness. I pray this joy would be yours. Let's pray together. Father, I am thankful to you for your word. You have revealed to us the glory of your son. And in your son, we have access. We have forgiveness. We have have joy. We have hope for life eternal. This commandment that is eternal life to believe on the Lord Jesus. Father, grant uh, to those who don't know you, grace to humble themselves to repent and believe and and grant to us the joy that is ours in Christ that he is the light of the world and that by him and through him we might find hope even in the midst of COVID-19 even in the midst of this darkness 
God, grant to us that joy. Give us eyes to see and enjoy all that we'll be walking through in this week as we consider all that your son has done. Uh, Lead us to yourself by your spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.